Hello, everyone. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you, for you, to you, at you, something this evening. Um, I'm going to begin by reading the lyrics of a song. Some of you may, uh, may know this song. It's called Wedding Dress by Derek Webb. Do you, are people familiar with that? Yeah. It's, it's sort of old. I'm dating myself, I guess. But um, this is uh, the second verse of the song and the chorus of the song. And uh, just to warn you in advance, there is a, a little bit of chorus language in here, but I'm not advocating it. I think we'll all, we'll all be all right. Uh, the song goes this way. Could you love this bastard child? Though I don't trust you to provide, with one hand in a pot of gold and with the other in your side. Because I am so easily satisfied by the call of lovers so less wild that I would take a little cash over your very flesh and blood. Because I am a whore, I do confess, but I put you on just like a wedding dress and I run down the aisle. I run down the aisle. Or I'm I'm a prodigal with no way home. But I put you on just like a ring of gold, and I run down the aisle. I run down the aisle to you. And this is a powerful song in a lot of ways. It's a perceptive and sharp indictment of the idols of money and security in the church. And I think Derek Webb uh, has done a good job of pointing out these sorts of idols in the church, like few musicians have. It's also perceptive, and, and, uh, and it's a powerful statement of, God's great, of the greatness of God's grace for us. But I think that the song is problematic in a couple of ways, and this is how. Uh, if, the songs are, if the lyrics are any indication, Derek Webb apparently uh, does not believe himself to actually be Christ's bride, but to be a whore dressed up in a, in a wedding dress. Um, and the wedding dress sort of mocks his sinfulness, and he finds his identity in his sinfulness rather than Christ, at least so the, I don't mean to say anything about Derek Webb's spiritual state, but this is where the lyrics seem to be pointing us. In other words, he, see, he still sees himself first and foremost as a sinner. Secondly, he's apparently continuing in this sin, even, though, uh, even while recognizing it as a sin. It's as though he's sort of hopelessly a sinner, and no one, he can't do anything about it, no one can do anything about it, not even Jesus. And so it's, it's just grace, and, but, there's, but there's no change. He's still stuck in his sinful ways. And these are two tendencies that I believe are not uncommon in the church. The tendency to identify with ourselves as sinners and to remain in our sin, feeling like there's no way out of it. But our passage in Ephesians today rejects both of these mistakes, urging us both to see ourselves as made alive in Christ and no longer dead in our sins, and also to grow into people who look and act like they are alive in Christ, not like they're still stuck in their sin. So uh, let me pray as we begin our uh, look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would be with us this evening. Guide us as we consider your word to us through Paul. I ask that you would speak to each and every one of us as we need to hear from you tonight. Speak to us truly about our identity in you. Amen. Our passage is, uh, at least I have divided our passage into three sections. Kendi and I, Kendi preached this morning, and uh, she and I divided it into three sections. The first is called dead, the second is called alive, and the third is called masterpiece. So we'll begin with the first section. Paul writes, as for you who were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So Paul begins by telling his readers that they were dead through their trespasses and sins. 
And there's a, a transition between second person plural, which is you, and first person plural, which is we. And just so we're, all, we're clear about whom Paul is speaking to throughout this passage, he starts out by talking to you, he's talking to his readers about what's happened to them, but then he says, uh, he talks about the, those who are disobedient, and he says, among whom we all once lived. Um, and so Paul starts out by speaking to his readers, because that's who he's writing to, and then he incorporates himself and all other Christians in this. So this passage is a message to all of us who are Christians, and it, it speaks to our state of life before we were Christians. So then the next obvious question, I think, is what does it mean to be dead? These are, of course, people who are alive enough to be reading Paul's letter or to be listening to Paul's letter as someone else reads it. So what does Paul mean by dead? And I think there's two aspects to this. The first is that uh, by dead, Paul means that we are destined for death and we are destined for judgment. I'm sure many of you remember in Sunday school memorizing the verse, Romans 6.23. It says, uh, for the wages of sin is, what is it? Do you remember? Death, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So we see for Paul and, and for us, sin leads to death and judgment. This is part of what Paul means when he says that we are dead in our transgressions and our sins. But by dead, he also means something that's taking place while we're alive, because he doesn't say you were dead, but, uh, excuse me, he doesn't mean only that we're destined for death and judgment. We won't, it's not that we would have been dead had we not become Christians, but that we were dead. So there's something going on while we're alive as well. And what I suggest is that this is, um, Paul sees people who are not living real life, the sort of life that God intends for people, as a sort of living death. Uh, and we see this uh, more powerfully in John's gospel. In chapter 17, verse 3, John actually defines real life as knowing God and knowing Jesus. And any other kind of life for John throughout his gospel is a sort of living death. And Paul reflects a similar outlook on life. Real life is only found in Christ. Everything else is this sort of living death. He, and he, he articulates this kind of death further, explaining what it is. He says, when you followed the ways of this world. So this death occurred when we were following the ways of this world. Now literally, in the Greek, this is according to the age of this world. And so According to the age means that you're doing stuff in the way that people of that age are doing it. And so that's why, where the NIV gets this translation of uh, following the ways of this world. It's perfectly good, but I just bring this to your attention because um, we lose the contrast between the age of this world and the, the age that is coming, the coming age over which Christ reigns. And we're going to see here, Paul is setting up a comparison between these two ages, and these, uh, these two ages are in conflict. Um, so we were all living in this, according to the age of this world, rather than living like Jesus, in living according to the coming age. Paul further clarifies um, that we were also following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And this ruler of the kingdom of the air is, a, is of course, opposed to Christ, who is the ruler of the age to come. And he, he goes on to say that we were also, he, he defines this ruler of the world as a spirit who is now at work among those who are disobedient. And this spirit, of course, contrasts with the Holy Spirit. So here we see these two clearly contrasting kingdoms, one of the age of this world and one is the age to come over which Christ reigns. And when we were dead in our sin, in which we lived just like the rest of the world, we were following the example of the world's ruler, who is the spirit influencing the behavior of people in the kingdom of the world. 
So what sort of behavior is typical of these kinds of people? Paul goes on to say that he means that the sort of life that is gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. This is Ephesians 2, 3. Now when Paul says this, he's not denigrating the physical aspects of our being. He's not denigrating our physical needs like hunger and thirst and the need for shelter, uh, any of that kind of stuff, the need for physical touch. There's... uh, Certain movements in Christianity that have done this throughout history, early Christian monastics and medieval monastics would sometimes do this, maybe, uh, you know, standing in freezing cold water to pray to keep their mind focused or, or living on bread and water all the time or avoiding bathing or things like this. And, and I, don't, I don't mean to say that there's never a time and a place for this. Of course, we see Jesus fasting in the New Testament, but this is not what Paul's talking about when he talks about the desires of the flesh, When Paul talks about the desires of the flesh, he's again talking about these two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of flesh and the kingdom of the spirit. He talks about this in Galatians. What he says is this. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. And Paul tells us what the desires of the flesh are. He says there's sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So notice, again, some of these are bad physical desires, such as these uh, sexual sins and drunkenness, but many are non-physical desires, such as idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, and so on. And then Paul contrasts this with the fruit of the Spirit, which surely you, uh, you have heard before. These are going to be familiar to you. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are in Galatians 5, and 23. So this living death then is characterized by these desires of the flesh that Paul talks about, not by the desires of the Spirit. And Paul says, in, in this, uh, Paul says this was a state of everyone, Jew or Gentile, before they, became, they were made alive in Christ. So for Paul, the world is characterized by these two conflicting kingdoms with two conflicting ways of living. And Paul's readers and all Christians used to live as part of the kingdom of the world, of the present age, the kingdom of the flesh, rather than the kingdom of God. So this being the case, they are dead in the senses that we've talked about. So this is the first section, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Before moving on, though, I want to make just a, um, a syntactical point. Uh, syntax, if, you, if you're not familiar, if you've forgotten what the word means from, from um, school, syntax is the way people are structuring their sentences. And, and the way Paul has structured this is verses 1 through 7 are one long, long sentence. And so most of our English translations are going to break this up because um, it's a uh, it's very cumbersome, especially in English. You get it in English and it's, you lose track of where you are in the sentence. So the first three verses that we've just talked about are what is called dependent clauses. And a dependent clause is just part of a sentence that depends on another part of the sentence. So the reason I tell you this is because all these dependent clauses are not Paul's main point. These are background that Paul thinks you need to understand in order to fully grasp his main point, which will come in the next section when we meet the main clause of this sentence. So keep this in mind. It's important that we weigh, uh, we, we understand the relative weight of these two 
parts of the passage. This part doesn't weigh as much as the main clause of the sentence that we'll be getting to, but it's still important for all of us to understand. The next section is alive. And Paul begins this section by saying, but God. And here finally we've gotten to the subject. God is the subject of the main action, the main verbs in this sentence. So we know God is going to do whatever it is that Paul wants us to tell about. <clears throat> He's getting closer to his main point, but still... He has more dependent clauses to go. He adds a few more in. The first is God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for with which he loved us. He tells us that whatever he's about to tell us God's going to do, he wants us to know that it's done out of his great mercy and out of his great love for us. And the last dependent clause here before we finally get to our main verbs. God did this for us even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. So he's just reminding us of everything we've just talked about in case we've forgotten. And finally now, we get to the main point. The main point is this. God made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul seems to be so excited that he interrupts himself because he kind of blurts out, uh, by grace you have been saved. And this, this exclamation is unconnected from the rest of the sentence grammatically. It's just in there as though he can't contain himself and just bleh, it comes right out. And keep in mind, he's about to say this again more fully uh, in the next sentence. But he can't wait. And with good reason, because we were dead, we were headed for judgment, we were deserving of nothing else, and yet God, for no other reason than because he loves each and every one of us, made us alive with Christ, gave us the gift of real, full, and everlasting life. Now, this is the most basic, basic truth of the gospel. You can go to any Young Life Club and hear this, you can go to any youth group talk and hear this, but it's so profound. And I think we forget it because we hear it so often and because it's so basic to our faith. But it is so profound for us. It's no wonder that Paul gets excited. And I think, <clears throat> I think in Christianity there's, there's been a trend in the last several years um, away from a sort of evangelism that focuses on this, right? We've realized that Christians uh, who have gone before us have sometimes made the mistake of, of emphasizing death and judgment when they're talking to non-Christians about their faith and sort of trying to scare people into believing uh, in Jesus. And I agree. I think that this has been done very insensitively in, a, uh, in a, lot of, a lot of times in the past. And it's good that we have remembered that there's a whole social aspect to the gospel. And we've got to be caring for people. We've got to be preaching Christ with our actions. But I think we must also always remember this truth. Because each and every one of us is going to die one day. We're all going to be six feet under. Everybody out here is going to die one day. And they're going to be six feet under. And the only thing that can bring us life is Christ. The only way we can be saved from death is through Christ, being made alive with Christ. We've got to be sensitive in how we talk about this to non-Christians. We've got to be sensitive how we talk about this to Christians. But it's a fundamental truth that we've got to maintain and we've got to remember. And I hope that we can be excited about it and we can be moved by it. Going back to the syntax again, I keep bringing this up, and I'm sorry if it's boring, but I think it's going to bear fruit for us, so, so hang in there with me. Uh, Paul's sentences are sort of legendary, and when I was learning Greek in seminary, um, we translated through Ephesians in second year Greek, <clears throat> along with some other stuff, and I remember when you go through, uh, you've got these sentences that go on and on, and you've got this huge dictionary on the desk that you're looking up these words in and your neck is killing you from staring down at the desk all this time and 
you're trying to figure out what the heck's going on in the sentence. If you've got all these pieces of it and you can't figure out how they fit together because you haven't found the main verb yet because it comes three pages later or something like that. And uh, it's, it's painful. And you, you finally, you find the main verb and you say, ah, okay, here's my main verb and my subject. But by then you've forgotten what the earlier words mean and you have to look them up again. And it's maddening and it's frustrating. But once you get used to it, once you learn the Greek a little better and you can, you can navigate these sentences a little better, you can see the effect that it has. And I'm not advocating that you all go learn Greek, but since I have, I'll, I'll tell it to you and you can, you can enjoy it vicariously through me. I think this is important. When Paul adds all these dependent clauses on top of each other in verses 1 through 3, and even then in the, in the beginning of verse 4, uh, it, it creates this effect of building tension in the sentence. Because you say, okay, yeah, we died in our transgressions and sins, and etc. He's going on and on and on, and you say, okay, okay, but what's the point? What's he trying to get at? Because you realize this isn't the main point. And it builds, 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 and then finally, but God, and then he adds more dependent clauses, and it builds some more, and he finally gets to his main point, and he says, made you alive in Christ. And it's huge. It's, it's this huge, impactful sentence that has built up on all these other dependent clauses. Uh, I was thinking of, this reminds me of uh, a scene in Braveheart, believe it or not. If you remember the movie, um, there's a scene where the Scottish army is fighting against the British army, and it's sort of this rabble of peasants on the Scottish side, and then the whole British army, English army, arrayed across the field, and they've got just, you know, all the technology of war, and their, their greatest uh, weapon is the cavalry, the heavy cavalry, and they've got these knights with the full armor and the huge lances and these huge strong horses that gallop across the field and the Scottish people don't have any horses. They're essentially defenseless against this cavalry. And William Wallace has uh, had this clever idea to make these really long spears that they've hidden in the grass. And as the cavalry charges toward them, everyone on the Scottish side is going is to pick up their spear and they hold them like this and the horse is going to run into them and everybody dies. And, um, and so you see the horses start charging and they, they run across, and, and the camera angle, of course, it's, it's, it's direct, you're looking directly at them, and it just looks like they're, they're coming closer and closer and closer, and William Wallace says, hold, hold, and they come closer and closer, and you think they must have somehow backed up because they would have hit by now if, if this was real camera, or I don't know how they did it, but the tension builds, and it builds, and you think, surely they're going to be run over, surely they're going to be run over, and you see the weight and the power of these horses and the long lances and the, the pitchforks that the Scottish guys are holding, or their little... Little axes and things are no match. And then at the last minute, William Wallace still says, hold. And then finally, when you think it's too late, he says, now. And everyone picks up their spears and there's carnage. And I won't get into all that because you've probably seen the movie already. And this is exactly what Paul's doing, except for the carnage part. <laughs> Thankfully, the tension builds up, right? The tension builds to this sentence until he finally gets to his main point. God made you alive with Christ. And it's powerful. And then he goes on and he continues to clarify what he means that we've been made alive with Christ. God raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Raised up here, it's referring to Christ's resurrection. This is how Paul uses the verb elsewhere in his letters. When he talks about us being seated with Christ, it's referring to his enthronement in heaven. And the idea is that somehow we participate with Christ in these events, in these actions. Elsewhere, Paul includes us in Christ's death as well, Colossians 2.12. Uh, and when we believe in Christ, his death becomes our death. And his resurrection becomes our resurrection. And his enthronement becomes our enthronement. 
It's not as though he gives it to us and in a way that they're no longer his anymore, but he gives them to us in a way that we, in that we then participate with him in his own actions. Baptism is particularly symbolic of this. If you've seen a baptism here, we baptize people under the drum set. Um, if you've seen a baptism here, you'll, you'll have heard the person baptizing say, do you guys remember it? What do we say? Buried, buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. And so baptism symbolizes this, that we are buried with Christ, we share in Christ's death, and then we are raised to walk with him. We share in his resurrection as well. And Paul here says we even share in his enthronement up in heaven. This isn't a common concept in our culture, or maybe any culture, I don't know. Uh, but there, there is one example that I was able to think of that I think illustrates this well. And there's, has anybody ever here, here ever heard of uh, Team Hoyt? It's a father and son team that does uh, endurance events like triathlons and marathons and stuff. And um, the son, Rick, has cerebral palsy. And so he can't do anything athletic. But his dad, Dick, has, uh, has taken the time to develop himself physically enough and, and uh, come up with technological solutions to be able to bring his son through all of these events. And so uh, when, when he's swimming in the water, he ties a rope to his waist or something, and he tows his son in a boat behind him. You can imagine how difficult that would be uh, if you've ever, you know, swimming is hard enough on its own. Towing a boat must be even a, a lot harder. When he bikes, he has a seat on the front of his bike that his son can sit in. When he's running, he has a, like a, a fancy wheelchair that he, he's able to push his son in. And so uh, this, these father and son team, have, they've, they've done, a, uh, uh, let's see, it's 1,130 endurance events. They've done Ironmans, they've done marathons, they even ran across the entire United, ran and biked across the entire United States together. And so the idea, the reason the father Dick has done this and the son Rick enjoys doing this, this is that through the father's actions, the son is able to participate in these events. The son is able to do these things that he could never do on his own. And this is what Paul is talking about. In a similar way, by God's grace, we have been made alive with Christ and we participate in Jesus' resurrection and in his enthronement. Just as Rick participates in these events through his father. Um, what does it mean then that we share in Jesus' resurrection and enthronement? It means that we share in the life that Jesus has. And this life that he has is characterized by his rule over the age to come, which exists even now along with the present age that will pass away. We share in Christ's life. We share in the sort of life that Christ lives. So why would God do this for us? Paul goes on to explain that God did all of this in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now this phrase, incomparable riches, um, the Greek word for incomparable is hyperbolon, which means to attain a degree that ex extraordinarily exceeds a point on a scale of extent. And the, the word for riches, plutos, means a plentiful supply of something, a wealth or an abundance. So I like to translate this, it's, it's too colloquial, colloquial for any of our translations, but I like to translate it that God made us alive with Christ and raised us and seated us with him in heaven, and here's the important part, so that in the ages to come he might show the over-the-top expansiveness or the over-the-top plentifulness of his grace. Think of um, an all-you-can-eat buffet 
or one of those wedding receptions where, where the food is great and the, the parents have apparently taken out a second mortgage to pay for this thing, right? I can't, when, I, when we were shopping for, uh, my wife and I were shopping for food for our wedding, I couldn't believe how much this stuff costs and it's unbelievable, but I love it when other people pay for it and I can eat as much as I want. And I go into these wedding receptions or the buffets and I think, man, I'm gonna eat like eight plates of this stuff. I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna have like three plates of roast alone and then a little bit of the pasta and a few rolls and, and whatever else and maybe some salad. And then I get in there and I've, I can, especially now, I'm 35 now, I'm not as young as I once was, I can't eat quite as much. And I get in and I eat a plate and I'm full. And I, it's just, it's more than I can handle. It's just, it's super abundant. It's too much of this good food. And this is what, what God wants to show us that his grace is this kind of abundance. It's just over the top. It's plentiful. It's, it's abundant. It's super abundant. God simply wants to give us these gifts, making us alive with Christ, raising us with him, and seating us with him. It's pure generosity and pure love. So Paul then summarizes, repeating his outburst from earlier. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Again, this is a free gift. It's undeserved. It's unasked for. It's even unlooked for in some ways. And yet God has given it to us. The third section then, masterpiece. Paul explains further why God would want to be so kind and generous to us. And he says that God wants to do so because we are God's handiwork. Now this, work, this word handiwork here, poema in the Greek, it designates what someone has made. So a masterpiece could be another translation for this. Think of, for example, La Pie, the, the Pieta by Michelangelo. Has anybody gotten to see this sculpture by Michelangelo? Yeah, okay. A couple people, yeah. It's in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and I got to see it. Um, and it's beautiful. It's behind bullet, bulletproof glass, if I remember rightly. And you can't get up super close to it, but you're, you're close enough to see it well. And it's, it's very beautiful. I'd, I'm sure if there's any artist in here, I know Abigail's, Abigail's an artist. Do you sculpt at all? No, Abigail doesn't sculpt. But uh, <laughs> I, think this, I think this sculpture is marble, and it's very shiny. I was struck by that when I saw it. It's very shiny, which makes it look much better. I was expecting sort of like, um, uh, like clay statues that you see that are they're beautiful, but they're not shiny. I don't know. I liked that it was shiny. But this is a masterpiece. This is something that Michelangelo has made. So this is an example of what we can think of. We are Christ's workmanship, his handiwork. And we look back to Genesis and we see that indeed God has made us. Not only that, he's made us in his image. And we alone, out of all of his creatures, bear the image of God. And so in that sense, we are Christ's masterpieces. We reflect him in a way that no other part of his creation does. And so as an artist values her creation, just as they put Michelangelo's uh, creation behind this bulletproof glass so that it cannot be damaged, so God uh, values us and wants to preserve us in the same way. He doesn't want us to be damaged. We have been damaged. We have been defaced. And so for this reason, he restores us. He restores the image of God in us. He raises us out of death and into life. But... Being made in God's image, being raised into life, doesn't mean we're just raised back into any kind of life, just sort of a neutral resurrection. We are, we are raised into a specific kind of life, the kind of life for which we were created at the beginning, the kind of life that Christ now lives. And this comes with a responsibility. <clears throat> 
We have the responsibility and the privilege to live in a way that reflects God's character. Paul articulates this clearly when he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we can't bear God's image effectively if we don't look like God, if we don't reflect his character. Put in a way more consistent with the earlier part of the passage, when we were dead in our sin, we lived according to the present age and according to the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. Now that we are alive in Christ and participating in the coming age over which he rules, we have the privilege and responsibility to act according to the coming age, according to the Holy Spirit, now at work among those who are obedient and bringing the coming age into being. Now, if any of you are getting worried that I'm talking about works righteousness and expecting Martin Luther to come down the aisle waving his fists and saying, by grace alone, by faith alone, I want to be clear that this is, I'm not speaking of works righteousness. Works righteousness is where you talk about being saved by your works. This isn't at all what I mean. This isn't at all what Paul means. Paul is not saying we have to earn our salvation through our works. He's already been very clear that salvation is a gift from God, an unexpected gift, an undeserved gift that we receive through grace, by grace, through faith. Rather, Paul is urging us here to be what we are. That phrase, be what we are, be what you are, I think I made it up, but I don't know. I may have stolen it from someone. So if you read it somewhere else, that's probably where I saw it. Um, But I like it. Be what you are. Um, I have two kids, and so I'm a dad. When I come home from work, um, I need to be a dad. But sometimes I don't want to be a dad. Sometimes I would rather not spend time with my family because I'm tired. I would rather go read a book or sit on the couch or something like this. But I have a choice before me. I am a dad. I'm going to be a dad. And I have to ask myself... uh, Am I going to be what I am, or am I going to be something else? Paul is saying that whatever we feel like, we do share in Christ's life. We are a part of the coming age, and he's urging us to act like it. He's urging us to be what we are. We are not whores masquerading as brides, to borrow the imagery of this song we spoke about earlier in the sermon. We are actually pure brides. We are not prodigals slipping daddy's golden ring onto hands that are still smeared with the muck and the grime from the pig pen. We are actually beloved sons and daughters. Paul urges us to act in accordance with the new identity graciously given to us by God in Christ. So to me, this is a beautiful passage. It's a a compact and evocative summary of the entire gospel message. Let me try to summarize this for you before we close. We've covered a fair amount of ground here. So Paul wants us to know that although we were dead in our sins, God made us alive with Christ. He raised us with him. He seated us with him in heaven because he loves us passionately. He loves us this much because we are his handiwork made to reflect his image clearly to the world around us. So with Paul, let us consider gratefully that we uh, let us consider gratefully that we were not left for dead in our sin. Let us rejoice at the over-the-top expansiveness and plentifulness of God's grace to us by which He made us alive in Christ. Let us go forth also to live as God's workmanship, doing the good works for which we were created. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you that you did make us alive with Christ. 
even when we were dead in our sins. We thank you that you, uh, that you love us that much. We thank you that you have created us for good works, that we have the privilege to participate in your kingdom. I ask that you would help us to do so. Fill us all with your spirit. Help us to be sensitive to the moving of your spirit in our lives. Amen.